From COK Studios in David Green's Hydebed, this is Consider Our Knowledge. I'm Connor Bentley. On today's show, we're considering some of the best segments that we've done over the first half of 2015. Please enjoy this best of episode that we're doing because we didn't have time to do a real episode this week. Yay, clip shows. Stay with us. Support for Consider Our Knowledge comes from Snood, America's second best Scandinavian furniture store. Makers of the Munsk, the Grolentog, and the Plunda. Snood, more expensive than Ikea and harder to put together. And listeners like you. Well, not exactly like you. Most of our listeners are cheapskates who think this show can be done for free. Well, guess what? It can't. This is Consider Our Knowledge. I'm Connor Bentley. And I'm Dinah Jones-Mallow. Last week, NBC Nightly News anchor Brian Williams came under fire for lying about his experiences as a reporter embedded with troops during the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. Williams had claimed that the helicopter he was riding in was forced down after being hit by a rocket-propelled grenade, but that was not the case. Williams apologized for his mistake and blamed the fog of memory for his inaccuracies. He has taken a leave of absence while NBC conducts an internal investigation. Trust is something that news anchors and reporters rely on for their credibility with an audience. And now that trust in Brian Williams has been shaken, what will it mean for his future and the future of journalism? We're joined here in the studio by former NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw and our own Cordell Nutbrock to discuss what the far-reaching implications of the Williams situation might be. Welcome to you both. Good to see you. Nice to be here. Tom, I'd like to start with you. You preceded Brian Williams as the NBC Nightly News anchor, and you know him well. Indeed I do. Why would he make up a story like that? Well, Dinah, as you know, all reporters are storytellers. Brian Williams is a storyteller, and storytellers can't resist a good story. The events Brian described did happen. They just didn't happen to him. A helicopter ahead of his was shot down by an RPG. It just wasn't his helicopter. He made the story more gripping by making it about himself. I understand that. But even though it made the story more gripping, isn't it still wrong? But not at all. We've all embellished a story here and there to drive home a critical point or to make it more entertaining for the listener or viewer. I'm sorry, but I haven't. Uh, Really? No, but I take it you have, Cordell. Well, yes, I have. And I'm sorry that I'm not as perfect as you. I'm not proud of it, but sometimes the job requires it. I'm not sure I agree. Oh, please. It's not that big of a deal. Do you remember that story I did on the Chinese terrorists last year? Yeah? I've never even been to China, Dinah. I recorded that whole piece from a Chick-fil-A in Midtown Manhattan. But if I said I wasn't in China, that story would have made no impact on the COK listeners. It was a necessary lie. I see. I see. Tom, any other possible reasons for reporters like Brian Williams or Cordell to fabricate information? Well, I know in Brian's case he had a tough act to follow. Me. That poor kid was probably just trying to live up to the insanely large standards that I set. Nobody can know what it was like for him to come after a mega-celebrity anchorman. I'm not mad that he told some tall tales and called into question the credibility of NBC News. I pity him. Jealousy will make people do some pretty weird things. 
Don't I know it? Sometimes you feel like you have to make up stories just to be noticed. I made up that story about how I rescued a boat of orphan panda cubs from Somali pirates, and I still lost the co-anchor job, so I can really sympathize with Mr. Williams. What, what do you think NBC News will do now? NBC needs to take a long, hard look in the mirror and decide what they want their news to be. In my opinion, this new breed of jealous anchormen needs to focus on the real stories, not on being as cool as the last guy. If I were in charge of NBC, I'd consider reassigning Brian for a while, and maybe bring in a steady veteran anchor to immediately reestablish the gravitas of the NBC nightly news. Any thoughts on who? Well, I just happen to know of a handsome white-haired reporter. It sounds like he had a stroke. Who's available? I think I know what you mean. No, just get over yourself. I'm sorry, but I just can't take it anymore. You're such a goody two-shoes. It makes me sick. You and Brokaw don't know what it's like for people like me and Brian Williams, always in the shadow of someone else. I had to say that I broke out of a Turkish prison just to get to do a story on what Jewish deli makes the best corned beef. But telling lies to get ahead isn't the answer, though. She's right, Cordell. Don't cram it, Brokaw. I'd tell a thousand lies to have your job, Dinah. But you do co-host sometimes. Sometimes. Nobody remembers the fill-in guy. I hate being the fill-in guy. Oh, woe is me. I'm sorry, Cordell. Oh, apology accepted. That was COK Zone, Cordell Nutbrock, and NBC News' Tom Brokaw. Both Alaska and Washington, D.C. made recreational marijuana legal last week. These decisions have rekindled the debate about legalizing cannabis ahead of the 2016 election. Surprisingly, nearly two-thirds of millennials who identify as Republican support legalizing marijuana, while almost half of older GOP Gen Xers do, according to a recent survey by the Pew Research Center. While Democrats favor legalizing marijuana in greater numbers than Republicans, the gap is narrowing, and that could mean that Republican politicians might need to change their views on marijuana to appeal to younger voters in 2016. I spoke with a Republican hopeful who is embracing the idea of courting GOP voters who want to legalize cannabis. Paul Peckham is a GOP hopeful for the Colorado Senate seat in 2016, and he's going all in to win over marijuana-smoking voters. The statistics don't lie, especially here in Colorado. People like to smoke dope. I mean, I know I'm old, I'm 68, but that doesn't mean I didn't like to have a little dope back in my college days. Peckham has employed a group of millennial Republican stoners to help him with his campaign. They've been very helpful in letting me know how to court the young GOP voters, even if they are always smoking dope. I keep telling Paul to stop calling it dope. Nobody calls it that anymore. He's still got a lot to learn before 2016. Winnie Fremont and her colleague, The Grundle, are hoping to get Paul Peckham elected because they see that a marijuana-friendly Republican Party is the future. Obama is the worst. His policies on the economy and Iran are ruining this country. I keep telling the Grundle that fiscal conservatism and hitting the bong aren't mutually exclusive. Oh yeah, I mean, have you ever watched old clips of Ronald Reagan while you're high? It's amazing. 
A lot of people don't know what a major Toker Reagan was. He was always eating those jelly beans because he had the mad munchies. In the Senate race for Colorado, Winnie and the Grundle are coming up with ideas that will make Peckham seem more legitimate to conservative potheads. We try to give Paul stuff to say in his speeches that will resonate with the stoner community. Like, oh, if Peter Piper packed a pipe of purple pot, how many pipes of purple pot could Peter Piper pack? <laughs> Good one. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and Paul has me working on appealing to female voters. We're trying to help them see that giving up their reproductive rights and equal pay isn't that big of a deal. Women need to understand that Republicans like Paul are looking out for our best interests. The right to legally get high. Yeah. Conservative stoner girls are a huge part of the equation if the GOP wants to win in 2016. You know what? Can we just go back to being stoners without gender being involved? I never knew that toking down was a primarily male thing. I mean, my smoke circle is made up of a number of people, guys and girls. And none of the guys think that the girls are one of the bros because it isn't a masculine thing. Just let the world see you as an herbal being as opposed to a gender-specific smoker. So being labeled a stoner girl bothers you, but getting paid less than a man for the same job and not having control over your own body is okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a great platform for all of us young Republican women. It shows that we're really ready to move forward on some social issues while still staying true to our antiquated conservative ideals. <laughs> yeah. How high are you two right now? Extremely. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you want some? Well, I've never been one to turn down a fatty. For COK News, I'm Dinah Jones Mallow in Colorado. <sighs> Now we turn to music. Our friends over at Weekend Edition did a story on composer and University of Maryland professor David Tai. He recently teamed up with researchers to create a piece of music designed specifically for cats. The piece, called Spook's Ditty, has layers of high-pitched harp notes played at 23 per second, which is the rate of a common cat's purr. Tai is hardly the first to create music for our feline friends, however. Chairman Meow's Feline Chorus has been churning out cat-friendly records for decades. I sat down with Chairman Meow himself, Herb Lippman, to discuss his career in this installment of our Consider the Sound series. It's not often that you hear 15 to 20 grown men and women trying to sound like cats, but that's what Herb Lippman, a.k.a. Chairman Meow, has been doing since the 1970s. I was a choral director by trade, and my wife Dana and I are huge cat lovers, so one day I thought... Why not combine my two passions? Herb formed an early incarnation of his cat choir in 1972 and recorded his first single, Meowed Night Trained Georgia. Our choir is just a bunch of cat lovers like us who love to sing. We love performing together and we love sharing our music with our cats. Some people think we're strange, but I don't care. Our cats love the music. It's like catnip for their ears. Herb has cranked out 16 albums of feline-friendly tunes over the past 35 years, including Meow Money, Meow Problems, Meowgical Mystery Tour, Cat Out of Hell, and Call Me Meowby. We've done every genre, pop, hip-hop, ska, classical, punk, soul, and heavy metal. We even did an album with an African cat choir, Ladysmith Black Cat Meowbazo. Now, Herb, you've got a new album coming out soon. That's right! It's a collection of some of the choir's favorite songs. Kind of a best-of collection. Meow, that's what I call music. 
Let's hear a track from it. Okay, this one is from 2001, A Space Odyssey. It was originally on our 1992 album, It's All Coming Back to Me Meow. That was great. The cats love that one. Our Manx Boots just goes crazy on his scratching post when he hears it. I'll bet. Now, is there one more song you'd like to share before we go? Sure. This one is one of my friend Roxy's favorites. Roxy is a cute little tabby who really likes the upbeat stuff. This is Simon and Garfunkel's classic, Feline Groovy. Meow, meow, meow. Meow, meow, meow. Meow, meow, meow. Meow, 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 meow. Herb, thank you for the time today. I was perfectly happy to do it. Chairman Meow's Feline Chorus will be touring this spring and summer promoting their new album. This has been Consider the Sound. Now we turn to our Consider Your Health series. Alex Truman is back to take your questions again on various health issues in this special Ask Alex edition. Hi there, Alex. Hello, Cotter. Should we just get right to our listener questions? Yes, let's. Okay, then. Our first question is an email from Carrie in Kissimmee, Florida. She's curious about placenta pills. Ugh, ew. She says, Dear Alex, I'm about to have a baby, and I'm curious about these placenta pills that some celebrity moms have been talking about. Tia and Tamara Mowry from Sister Sister tried it, so did Alicia Silverstone, and Big Bang Theory's Mayim Bialik. They raved about feeling more energized, less depressed, and being better able to produce milk. What do you think about this? Well, Carrie... Despite the fact that my gag reflex is triggered at the mere thought of consuming one's own placenta, I understand how something like this would be attractive to new mothers. Having more energy and avoiding postpartum depression would be great, but unfortunately there isn't any hard evidence that consuming the, the, the placenta in pills or any other form does anything at all. You're welcome to try it. But I'd think long and hard about it before I'd do something as gross as consuming your own afterbirth. Besides, do you want to take parenting advice from Blossom? I know I wouldn't. She's the one who does that gross attachment parenting where you breastfeed your kids for way too long and sleep in the same bed with them. In my opinionation, that is a recipe for disaster. Next question, please. Sure thing. We have Pat on the line from Santa Barbara. Hi there, Pat. Hi, my seven-year-old son has really bad night terrors, and I heard that there's some new device that helps prevent them. If it's one thing I know about, it's night terrors. In fact, I used to get day and evening terrors as well. Anytime I so much as doze off, there's a good chance I would have some sort of terror. Yikes. The device you're probably referring to is the Lully Sleep Guardian. 
It's a small Bluetooth-enabled pod that pairs with an iPhone app. To prevent a child from entering an unhealthy state of sleep, where night terrors typically occur, just place the lully under your child's mattress, and it will emit gentle vibrations. Don't kids typically outgrow night terrors? Yes, but I was not that lucky. I am one of the 0.02% of adults that are affected by night terrors. My lully has been helping, but I was told by my doctor that my terrors are so intense that they are like a violent combination of Vietnam and acid flashbacks. One time, I woke up in the bushes outside of my house holding some kind of hunting knife at a Jefferson Airplane album. I hope your son has better luck than I did. Thanks for your question, Pat. Finally, we have a question from Bill in Cheltenham, Pennsylvania. Hi, Alex and Connor. My wife rarely feels like having sex, and I was curious about this new female Viagra pill that's coming out. Last week, the FDA advisory panel recommended that they approve flibanserin as long as there are measures in place to make sure that women are aware of its risks, including low blood pressure and fainting. So, let me get this straight. The pill makes women want to have sex. Yes, in theory. However, the FDA has rejected the drug twice already because previous advisory panels concluded that there were questions about its safety and insufficient evidence that the drug was effective for women with low sex drives. I see, I see. But if it does work, the pill would make women want to have sex. Yes. Does the pill have a taste? I'm sure it has somewhat of a medicinal taste. What if you put it in, say, a drink of food? Jello pudding, for example. Would you taste it? I'm not sure why you're asking that, Bill. Oh, and, uh, just because my wife has trouble taking the pills, that's all. <laughs> I think we need to wrap this up, Bill. Just one last question. Does this pill make women faint every time they take it? No, but it does have that as a potential side effect. So they won't pass out every time. No. I'm too bad. Thanks for the call, Bill. Am I the only one who was disturbed by that? No. That was Consider Your Health with Alex Truman. That's all for this week's episode of Consider Our Knowledge. If you want more from the best-looking news team in public radio, go to our website, considerourknowledge.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Consider Our Know. The podcast is available for download at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio at Stitcher.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Connor Bentley. <laughs>